0: Blob Talk Radio You want to replay the point? Okay Mr. Mavrinka wants to replay the point 15 on. play the point. Today is February 20th, 2017. Pete Brown of Tennis Acumen, joined by co-founder of Tennis.Life and former UCLA Bruin Barry Buss. Good evening, Barry.
1: Greetings, Peter. uh, Glad to be back on with you.
0: Absolutely, and uh, quite a bit to talk about. We're going to start off uh, Barry. We could really go any direction here, but Ryan Harrison, a, a very nice story for him. He won the Memphis 250 First ATP title of his career, and you know, I had projected based on what I saw from him years ago, uh, the fact that he'd probably have a half a dozen titles by now. He really looked like he had the goods, the material to to get it done. He finally got it done here in February of 17. I know you're familiar with, with Ryan and his career and his trajectory, his family and whatnot, but um want to get your first off, uh, your initial thoughts on uh, Ryan Harrison and his accomplishment that he was able to pull off on Sunday. Yeah, no, no, that
1: caps a great month for him. I think he was down in Dallas at a challenger, uh, and I don't think he lost a set. That week. Um, you know, I've always been partial to the Harrison clan. I used to run around with uh, Ryan's uh, father, Pat, years and years ago, back in our junior and college days. Um, yeah, this it, it's crazy. I mean, I just, uh, Ryan's only 24. He feel like, It feels like he's been on tour, you know, half of my adult life here, you know. <laughs> he's been out there forever, yeah. but I think he was he got into the top 50 as a teenager and uh boy oh boy what a, what a what a fall, you know and uh you know it was kind of emblematic of the the struggles in American tennis during you know 09 and 2010 and 11 when kind of all the angst uh really picked up in the tennis community about uh you know where is our next champion coming from and Ryan you know really you know was one of the guys one of our shining lights there that was supposed to be the next the next uh, heir apparent to the Roddicks and Fishes and those guys, and it just didn't happen. But, you know, full credit to him. I mean, that's just that's such a tough life out there, and, and the injuries and the confidence and the motivation, and you're growing up in a, in a really, you know, to up and down world where it's just, you know, it's really, you know, you know, the maturity that's needed out there to be a successful tennis professional is quite uh, it's quite demanding, and there's not a whole lot of teenagers out there, you know, ready for, uh, for prime time, so to speak. So just great, great effort. I saw a lot of his tennis looks like he's playing much more within himself. I mean, just really smart, error-free tennis, you know, with the big serve, you know, to uh, set up the points. But, no, it was wonderful. He played beautifully and uh, really, really happy for him.
0: Well, and you made a good point. Uh, you know, he won the Dallas Challenger also. Barry didn't drop a set there. So he has won his last 20 consecutive sets, uh, Dallas Challenger and everything in Memphis. So I agree. You mentioned he's 24 years old, but it seems like he's been around forever. We could probably say the same thing about Donald Young, but I, I completely agree with the fact that it feels like he's been here for such a long time and was really just caught up if you will, in that lost generation as you mentioned, a lot of disappointment, uh, anxiety angst if you will, even with, with U.S. men really not performing, but uh, this could be the springboard this could be a very nice foundation for him uh, you mentioned he's within the top 50 right now, let's see where he can go from here, um, obviously we've got the Hardcourt season coming up, a couple big ones, Indian Wells, Miami, he'll have a boatload of confidence coming into those, and I want to shift gears a little bit now, and um, someone who had a lot of success in Memphis, Kane Nishikori Barry elected not to play Memphis. I believe he won the last four consecutive Memphis titles, and uh, decided instead to go play in South America, went to Buenos Aires, and uh, got to the final, did not win that final, but... Wow, you know, uh, obviously tennis players are creatures of habit. They they stick with the routine, with the regime, uh, with, you know, even what they eat for breakfast and dinner it, when it all works well. Why on earth uh, would, would Kei Nishikori decide to uh, to not play Memphis this year? And part two of that, if he weren't going to play Memphis, why did he go to South America and maybe not go play at the Rotterdam 500?
1: Uh, maybe he doesn't have room for another guitar he's been winning that that memphis one pretty handily you know what i actually the interesting part of this uh with his scheduling and you never know exactly you know what's going on behind the scenes with appearance money and stuff like that but i if i were him this makes a lot more sense to me to get on the clay with all the injury problems that he's had um physically and stuff i just you know a little bit a little less hardcore a little bit more sliding around can't be that terrible for someone who's got who's been a little uh, had precarious health the last uh, several years of his career um and you know it's interesting too. I mean, I, I was just looking at the records here. He's now 11 and 22 in, in uh, tour finals, so you know that can cut a couple of ways. I mean, that's obviously not uh, not exactly the record you want to have. But then at the same time, that's 33 finals at the ATP level, which is nothing to. There's no shame in any of that. But uh, yeah, he's over a year now without a title, and uh, but he's still in the top 10, and. Um, you know it's a challenge you know I, I don't know i don't know what motivates these guys to to do this that or the other thing but um i think he maybe ran his course in memphis and you know was trying to give that uh, title to someone else and uh try his hand somewhere you know at a different different
0: locale a good call and, and it kind of reminded me a little bit john isner obviously here's an american full red-blooded american who uh, wants nothing more but to hang here or either when he's not playing tennis watch wrestling or football and he decided Barry last year to go to South America didn't end well for him at all played tiebreakers and actually lost them on clay but the Nishikori uh you know trajectory here going down to Buenos Aires reminded me a little bit of uh, of Isner going down there it didn't work out too well for him Obviously, Nishikori got to the final here, and you mentioned the 11 and 22 record in finals. That, as you said, 33 ATP finals. But he is 0-6 in his last six finals, Barry. And uh, I'm going to parlay that into another guy who just became 0-6 in his last six ATP finals, and that is David Goffin, losing in the Rotterdam final. To joel Wilford Songa. And Goffin was, with re- with this result, Barry got into the ATP top 10. First Belgian man ever to get to that achievement, that accomplishment. However, uh, March is looming and Goffin has got semi final points in both India e. Wells and Miami to defend. That was one heck of a run for him last year, reaching the semis in both of those back to back ATP Masters 1000s in the United States here. But uh, Good thing for him, he reached the top ten. I, again, I like the way he competes. I honestly still can't believe David Gofan is in the top ten. All credit to him. But uh, what do you see for his game going forward, and uh, what do you make of his march?
1: Wow, yeah, it's a it's a great story, and the kind of the age of the uh, the exceptionally taller and taller bigger banger uh, men's game, it just seems that there is always still room for the under six foot crowd. He's got David Ferrer and you've got uh, a handful of these guys who are, you know, not, uh, not physically imposing. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, I've seen him play live at at the U S open at court level. And you just absolutely cannot believe how quick, how quick he is and how clean he gets the ball. I mean, it's fascinating. It's just, it's just, he takes the ball early, He smothers you, uh, he may not hit it you know mph wise as hard as the other guys but his timing you know on the rise is is phenomenal so um he's got to have one of the top three or four backhands in the world and uh you know he, and he's extraordinarily tough under pressure you know he knows how to knows how to win and that's something uh you know you you know when you get right down to it these all these guys can strike the ball beautifully it's just who's got who can keep their nerve at the at the tough times and you know if you look at his record the last year he's got a dozen, you know, probably probably 20, at least 20, you know, long three-set wins that he's gutted out. So, obviously, he's got a lot of points to defend. I don't – you know, obviously, the top ten is a beautiful thing. Uh, it was kind of cute how he mentioned uh, he was quick to defend the, the women, the Belgian women, who was, yeah. was trying to uh, coin him as the, You're the first Belgian to make the top ten. he goes, well, we got a couple of girls who did pretty well,
0: too.
1: <laughs> but, uh, Um but anyway, yeah, he, you know, he's he, listen, He's a talent. It's great to see. It, it, I love the idea of the variety, and he's not, you know, he's not one of these six, eight, you know, flamethrowers. And uh, it just makes for more colorful tennis out there when the little guys, little guys at feet, and who can defend the court, you know, are, there's always going to be a, a place for them in the, in the uh, ATP tour.
0: Good call. I, I enjoyed him uh, last year. I saw him play at any wells. He beat Stan, and uh, it was not a good performance by Stan at all. He really. His back end was not working, uh, yet he still almost won the match. Uh, He had a match point, and credit to Goffin for for taking that one in the round of 16, but he got through, and that really propelled him going forward. But I agree, you know, watching him at court level, Barry, the the speed is just unbelievable that he possesses. And so something that I regret not talking about on our last show, Barry, you – You and Bobby Blair are the co-founders of Tennis.Life. I want to have you talk a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, turning the clock back about a year and a half, two years, uh, when when I hosted Passing Shots, we had Bobby Blair on as a guest. And you uh, came on the air as well, and then we parlayed that, Barry into you being a guest co-host of uh, passing shots for about six or seven months. And those were good times. But, uh, right now, obviously you've written a couple of books and, and I know that you contribute nearly daily to tennis.life. I've enjoyed reading a lot of articles, some of which we'll talk about in a little bit here, but if you can elaborate a bit on tennis.life and what you are looking to accomplish and what you're looking to bring to tennis fans everywhere with it.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, it's uh this is a you know a kind of a idea that we had. Uh Bobby has been involved in the publishing world for some time and uh and particularly in the digital publishing world and in different industries and stuff. And I remember he he invited me down to their offices one day and he goes, "Listen, see if you can plug tennis into this uh web web, web portal that we have." I said, "Absolutely, that would work perfectly." And one one of the complaints you know, for anyone who's been on uh, the internet scouring the tennis sites and stuff, a lot of the the digital media out there at tennis. dot com and ESPN Tennis and um, and some of the other Sports Illustrated, so it, it's pretty much mailed in. I just don't think the 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 sites are well managed. Uh, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of passion or energy going into the the space there. So I thought, you know, there's a great opportunity here to not just talk about the, with one of the complaints I've always had about the tennis media is just their obsession with the the stars of the game, the Federers and Sharapovas, and you know, and they can't seem to get beyond that. And you know, I understand it. I mean, that's that's where the the energy in in the tennis fan and the tennis uh, industry really is is the top guys at the big events. But but my experience in the game as a, as a player and a coach and a writer and, and someone who's you know knows the industry pretty has an in depth uh, you know understanding of what what it takes at all the different levels, whether it's college or junior or Whatever's going on the industry side of it, uh, I just wanted to give a little voice to those to those uh, parts of the game, and not not everything's about Federer because you know he's not going to play for six weeks. There's a lot of other stories out there that are that are that are that I think people would really really appreciate. And on top of that, I really feel that in the next couple of years, when the big four and Maria and Serena eventually retire, there's going to be a gap, and I think it's really important that for the tennis fan out there that there's a lot more going on in the tennis world. Than what you see on the weekends of the grand slams and Indian Wells and stuff like that. So, so we've done a really interesting idea here where I'm going to be curating uh, original content almost on a daily basis. I've been really on a, on yep. cranking it out here last month. It's been wild. Um, at the same time, we aggregate and we curate from around the internet. We're able to bring in other writers, um, their material and stuff, and uh, we got a good little thing going and. Uh, you know, now we just try to get, uh, you know, we're on the informational side of tennis right now, and then, you know, there's a lot of energy in the educational side of it, which is what we're going towards next. We'll be introducing a, some, like, a teaching court where there's a lot of, uh, you know, just the instructional side of uh, the online tennis world is at, and uh, we're very excited. You know, we got a lot of guys uh, really working hard on this thing, so I appreciate you you plugging us like that.
0: No, absolutely, and, and just for our listeners who might not be familiar, you are um – Working on this with Bobby Blair, who again, uh, you wrote a book about Bobby and his career. And if you can just elaborate a bit on Bobby Blair for people who might not know about Bobby.
1: Yeah, Bobby's uh, he's from my generation, and we're all children of the '80s and uh, in the tennis boom. And Bobby is one of Nick Bollettieri's first students uh, back in the early, early '80s, right when the Nick Bollettieri Tennis Academy was being built. And uh, Nick took special pride in Bobby. And Bobby, he kind of took Bobby from a scratchy junior to one of the top couple kids in the United States. Uh, he went on to, to be an All-American in Arkansas for a couple of years and then had a, didn't really quite break through at the tour level, but stayed very engaged in the game as a USTA coach and a world team tennis manager and had his own gym rookie pro team and just a bunch of stuff. So we stayed friends, and then he had a book that he uh, wanted written a couple of years ago, and he came to me after I had written my memoir, and uh, we got together and we wrote his book for him, and it was a very interesting story called Hiding Inside the Baseline. Um and we parlayed that into a book signing at the US Open with Billie Jean King and Nick and Sven Gronfeld and uh and it's kinda we've just been working on stuff ever since. So it's been uh it's been good you know he, he's got a, he's very good at the the back end the marketing side and the publicity side of stuff and it allows me to just be creative and, and do the things I like to do and you know seeking out tennis stories uh, that are you know that I think have interest a little bit more of a soul you know we're not here to, to be kind of the reality show fanzine kind of energy that you see at a lot of the other sites it's just we're really trying to get into the core of what makes tennis players and tennis fans tick and and uh, you know why we have such passion for this sport you know like we do So. So we've been doing well, and we're hanging in there. And uh, now we're just trying to figure out a way to make money at this. It's not that simple, but uh, we'll, uh, we're doing our best, and I uh, appreciate it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm a, I'm an avid reader. Uh, recently, Barry of Tennis Life, uh, your content is fantastic. As, as you mentioned, it's not just about the big four or Serena and Maria and Venus, et cetera. There's a lot more. There's a lot deeper stories, and and you go much deeper. Than uh, than the surface that we see on a lot of uh, general sites. So I'm I'm appreciative and I applaud your efforts and look forward to continuing to read on a daily basis. And Barry, you know one of the one of the recent articles you wrote about was Dennis Shapovalov. Obviously, uh, the youngster from Canada playing a live fifth rubber against Great Britain in Ottawa. And uh, yes, he was down two sets to love and down a break in the third set. But uh, fired a ball in disgust, ricocheted off the microphone of the chair umpire, struck the almost an uppercut on the on the chair umpire, and uh, this was something that uh, you know immediately grabbed attention. You know, tennis on Sports Center or whatever. Only we usually don't, we don't see the great points, the the points of the day, the points of the year. We see guys smashing their rackets or, uh, you know. Unfortunately, some uh, commotion with the player and the chair or even something as unfortunate as this. And, Barry, you know, we, we in addition to the ATP 75K challenger in Tempe that I'm going to talk a little bit about later on, but uh, we also had a 25K women's challenger in Surprise, Arizona. And last Sunday I went out there for uh, the opening day of qualifying, and I met and spoke with Brian early who happened to be in Canada, and he actually showed me a picture on his mobile phone of uh, the officials there, and he showed uh, the, the chair who was struck, you know, with, with, that, uh, with that closed eye, and he said, you know, a lot of people don't know that this. this guy couldn't sleep for the next four days, and uh, this was prior to the surgery happening and whatnot. But, wow, what an unfortunate situation. We've seen a lot of near misses here. Uh, Djokovic uh, obviously now Bandian getting DQ'd uh, destroying equipment if you will uh, and r- ricocheting off an official in a final of Queens but uh, I don't know you know obviously the match ended there Shepovalov lost the match even though he he's well on his way to losing that but I want to get your thoughts on uh, what happened what unfolded was enough done and uh, I hope we have lessons learned for everyone here
1: Yeah. Boy, what an unfortunate incident for the kid. And, um, you know, I mean, fortunately, he was very contrite afterwards and uh, very apologetic. And thank uh, thank goodness the umpire, though he did have to have surgery, um, has been pretty, pretty okay with it. He hasn't been uh, too hysterical about the whole thing, though, which would have just made it worse. But yeah, it it looked looked terrible right in the beginning very surprised when he said he was no problem. And then obviously a week later he finds out that, you know, the bone was actually fractured. Uh, I spoke to a bunch of tour guys asking them what, whether they thought the the penalty was appropriate or not. And to, to the person, they felt a the line was crossed and that he was, he got off too easy and that, that some form of suspension uh, was warranted here. Unfortunately, there is no precedent for this. And I think that's really where tennis has gotten a little bit of trouble. If you go back and you know, these are very, very isolated incidents as, as disturbing right. as they are, you, we, we can pull off, I mean, there's four or five of them on the Internet that everybody can dig out. I mean, Tim Henman got defaulted from Wimbledon 20 years ago for smacking a ball girl inadvertently. So uh, they do happen. Listen, there's, there's what, 15, 20 people on a tennis court, and frustration does occur. Uh, the overwhelming majority of, of tennis matches go on go on and off without incident. But uh, when these things do happen, you know, we've got to be careful. We've got to racket. We've got to, you know, these things can happen here. People can get hurt. Um Stefan Edberg actually killed a linesman, you know, and, and when he was eighteen years old. He him you know, the guy broke his broke his skull at the US Open. So if things can happen, we've gotta be careful out there and uh so it wasn't up. Don't know. That's not from that's not my situation to uh to decide. But yeah, it just seems that uh Christ you the kid just got rewarded with a wild card in Marseille. So I was <laughs> right. so you gotta yeah, I just not I don't quite understand that one. There's gotta be a little bit of uh you know that's a little tone deaf in my opinion from the Marseille promoters but um you know they they're running a the business themselves so it's complicated but you know it's tough you know it's frustration's never going to go away out there and and, and players are going to act out and uh you know let's just hope this is a wake up call for some of them I'm, my fear is it's not um you know being in san francisco last week watching that challenger guys were banging balls all over the place so you know i obviously the message uh, didn't come through too clearly so i you know it's tough it's it's a frustrating game and uh i don't know what outlets these guys can uh, learn to use uh, that that are less uh, dangerous to those in the area
0: no, good call. And, and I, I saw about the Marseille wild card, and someone tweeted that okay, you know he's going to cover his fine with uh, even a first round appearance in Marseille to uh, to cover what uh, what the damages, financial damages were. And Barry, I, I I don't know the exact amount. Do you do you know what the fine was uh, that he it received was, from uh, uh, the ATP?
1: Yeah, it, it was the maximum he could have got. It was from the ITF actually because it was Davis Cup. So the maximum oh. he could have got was was twelve thousand. Uh, they find him seven thousand because it was not intentional. So okay. even then, that seems that seems quite low.
0: Sure. I guess uh, the qu- a question that a lot of people have, and uh, uh, feel free to answer it or uh, or abstain for that matter, is uh, you know hypothetically, what what if this were Nick Kyrgios? Uh, what what will we see here? Uh, would there be time involved in, in being on the shelf? Would it be the maximum? Uh, amount of the fine from the ITF or something in between. Your your thoughts on that possibility? Yeah, that, because this, yeah,
1: absolutely fair question. I, I think you know if you have a history, you know, and this is where the real challenge for the Pavlov now is he's playing, you know, he's got a he's got a couple marks against him now. So he's going to go. He's seventeen years old. He's got you know obviously a very promising young player, and, and if he stays healthy, a pretty long career. But this is going to define him for the next several years, and, and this is something that really you know he needs to be. That needs to be acknowledged. He's, you know, he's going to be a, a watched man. He's going always going to be the guy who, who, you know, who nailed the umpire and broke his eye, and uh, right. you know, he's got to deal with that. And maturity-wise, you know, with social media being as it is now, he's going to have to be. He's going to be asked about this this repeatedly, probably this week and beyond. And uh, you know, this is going to be the, his defining moment. So there's a little bit of pressure on him to really, you know, obviously he's got a little bit of a temper. This is not a, the first time he's done something like. Uh, in his career, and uh, you know, acted out. He, this is the first time someone got hurt. So yeah, he's got to be super careful. And back to Curios, certainly, you know, Curios has got a, a, a you know a rap sheet now of on court mm-hmm. incidents. So this is Curios that does this? Absolutely. I think Curios is done. I think they sit him down mm-hmm. for six months. I mean, if they kill it, absolutely. I mean, he's already been, been suspended for other behavior. If he, if that was him who took this guy out, absolutely. Right. So you know, so there is a. You know, your prior record it definitely comes into play here. Since this kid was younger, it was his first incident. I think they probably figured he's, he's suffering enough as it is. And uh, but you know, obviously we'll see. He's got a you know he's got a gun to his head now. He's got to be a little careful.
0: No, oh, good call. And um, I'm going to segue into uh, another young gun, Barry. That uh, I saw. This is uh, last year in Cincinnati on a on a side court. Um, very fortunate to uh, to get a gift call and a tiebreaker wins that first set tiebreaker, but yet uh, still uh, is carrying something over that really doesn't work well for him. He asks for a uh, a towel from the ball girl. the towel does not come comes a little later and it, it it eventually gets there. He goes to the service line to serve and is given a time violation and he points to the girl and says she should get the time violation, not me. And I, and part of that is accurate, but I am referring to none other than, than Alexander Zverev who lost that day to Sugita from Japan, a match that he absolutely threw away. But um, I'm going to fast forward now to Alexander Zverev in 2017, Barry. And uh, again, up two sets to one against Rafael Nadal at the Australian open held a match point against Nadal at Indian Wells last year. That one got away from him I uh, wrote a uh, projection piece on this, thinking that Nadal would get the win, that uh, this would still be ringing in his head. Uh, that may or may not have been the case. I, I, I honestly think it was. Nadal out-mentaled him. Uh, Zverev then lost uh, in Davis Cup at home with his brother in doubles, uh, Misha, to the Belgians and uh, lost a singles match there. Then turns it around, Barry, wins a 250 in France, Montpellier, defeating three Frenchmen along the way, Chardy, and finally beats uh, Songa in the final. And uh, incredible for Alexander Zverev to turn that around. It's almost, uh, you know, we look at what Davis Cup is and, um, you know, Federer even says, you know, playing Davis Cup is much more difficult than even playing a Wimbledon final. And was, was, uh, yeah, I, lo- I love Davis Cup for the fact that guys can get a lot of experience and, and be under pressure here. And here's Zverev, under all kinds of pressure playing at home, couldn't quite handle that, goes to the country next door and beats three of their own guys on their own soil to win the 250. Your thoughts right now on Alexander Zverev?
1: Yeah, I mean, he certainly, uh, if I was a betting man, I would be very long on him. I mean, I think he broke into the top 20 here now with that victory. Yeah. And, uh um, you know, I think what, what's challenging for all of these guys, you know, is the margins at that level are so small, and, and everybody can seriously play. I mean, he went out first round. The next week, he had to play Dominic Team first round uh, at Rotterdam right. after winning it say so yeah, there's just no <laughs> there's no rest out there it's this is a brutal brutal way to make a living but uh you know listen he's played a ton of tennis i think he's young he's uh in a place where he's going to have some ups and downs this is still relatively new to him the rigors of being uh you know going deep and you know it's one thing to play a lot of events it's one thing to go another thing to go deep in those events and if you're playing you're playing on the weekends and obviously you know you're running you're running three or four events together in a row uh, it's hard to keep that uh, level of ex- excellence up, and, and uh, so you'll see a little bit up and down. You're going to lose some Davis Cups here, and then go win the next week. Then go out first round the next week and complain about the balls like he did. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that or not. Right. But he was, yeah, he was adamant about the you know these uh, these uh, technofiber balls that they were using in Rotterdam. So yeah, it's uh, it's all up and downhill from here. I guess is the only way I can really say it. And this is he's, he's right, and he's in a good spot. The the trending line is upwards and and very very promising. But there's obviously going to be a few hiccups along the way. And um, you know even even the best of the are are are, are the, the big four have had their ups and downs too. So I don't think it's uh, out of the ordinary what he's going through, but. Uh, very promising. Uh, I think by end of the summer, if he stays healthy, he's, he's going to be a threat at the U.S. Open. There's no reason he shouldn't. Yeah. You know, if he keeps keeps developing, and you know that's going to be his best surface, I think. And uh, you know, he's got all kinds of games. So let's, let's put a little confidence behind him. I wouldn't. I would not. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a big win. You know, big big tournament win this year. Uh, you know, and pulls off a major event.
0: Yeah, the sidebar question, how how important is it? Uh, obviously, his brother is having a, a nice year, beat Murray, obviously, at the Australian Open, but uh, a long way back for Misha Zverev, who, who's who been on tour for a while, but how important in your mind, Barry, is, is it to for someone like Alexander to have Big Brother there with him on tour? He can hit with him, practice with him, bounce things off him, and uh, wow, I mean, what a huge advantage. Almost, you know, if you will, with the Williams is, uh, you know, being able to practice and hit together. Here's Alexander being able to now hit with Misha and uh, pick his brain, if you will. And your thoughts on maybe how that is more of an advantage for him than the rest of the field.
1: Oh, that's it. That's a huge, huge, huge deal. I mean, really you can't, you know, you can, I mean, how many hats is his brother, older brother wearing? He's his brother, he's family, he's uh Confidant, he's got experience, he can be his practice partner, and he can give him coaching advice, he can be his kind of his mentor, you know, for, and for, for what? Doesn't cost him a nickel, <laughs> you know. Whereas, you yeah. know, he was, he was lamenting the, the possible price tag on getting a Boris Becker or like one of the celebrity coaches in, in his box, and he couldn't afford them right now because he hadn't won enough events. But to have mm-hmm. someone like a brother like that, is just, you know, or a father who played the tour or something like that, sure, that goes a long, long way, you know, and that you can't put a, you know, if you had to pay for that, kind of uh service you know that would be that would be big box. so to have that available at your you know at your disposal and uh you know, and I think it feeds you know listen when the brother does well I mean how how can they not feed off of each other when one starts to sure. play well and you know it's just it's just the energy is positive everyone's upbeat and uh you know it's great to see them win the doubles at, at Marseille oh. that was awesome I mean they pulled a double there and um, you know, Harrison almost had one yesterday himself, but that was, uh, it's, it's nice to see these guys doing both, uh, singles and doubles duty. Um, but no, I, I think, you know, I, I, he's just, he really impresses me. He He's a little temperamental. I'm a little bit concerned right. about that. So I'm, he's not, uh, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve and, uh, not afraid to He expresses himself out there. And that level of frustration can cost him matches like you just mentioned, uh, last summer. So he's got to be a little careful there. This is no, this is, the top five is no place for, for moodiness. Uh, You've got to be really, really have an even keel out there and be able to deal with adversity. And uh, so that's really the next challenge. He's got all the game in the world. It's just, can, can he oh. deal with the adversity of, of tour life?
0: No, agree. And, Barry, three more talking points before we wrap up tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about one of the pieces that you wrote about the Challenger Tour, as well as Tony and Rafa Nadal, and then finally Doug Adler. But want to uh, dive into one of your recent articles on Tennis.Life, Chip and Charge, talking about the Challenger Tour and some of the challenges, if you will, that all the players have. I want to get your thoughts uh, first, if you can uh, summarize the article that you wrote, and then I'd like to chime in as well, given the fact that I saw quite a bit of the brand-new ATP $75,000 challenger in Tempe, Arizona, played on the campus of ASU. So uh, if you can paraphrase, if you will, your article and uh, what you've observed and what these guys are going through, having to go through on the Challenger 2 or week in and week out.
1: Yeah, no, I was out at the San Francisco uh, KPSF thousand dollars Challenger uh, two weeks ago, and I managed to watch, uh, we were housing one of the players, Tennis Sangren, who just won down in mm-hmm. uh, Tempe, yourself. So we went to watch yes. the match against Mike Poe, and uh, they ended up going 7-6 in the third. We had a phenomenal viewer up high looking down on the court, and I just cannot tell you how many blown line calls, missed line calls, overrules from the chair uh in the third set breaker, an overrule from the chair i mean it was just it was just awful i, I really i felt terrible for both guys i mean it, this the you know it was going back and forth
0: um
1: and it, just one of the challenges you know if you if people don't understand you know when they run these events out there you have two tennis players on a court you've got basically eight to nine paid linesmen for every two athletes and and add another five or six volunteer ball boys so you've got like fifteen. People needed for a, for a professional tennis match to to go down, and it just seems un unthinkable to me at this stage of technology that we 're living in right now that the the shot that the hawkeye technology that they use at the major events cannot somehow be implemented in these smaller events economic in an economically feasible way. I understand. All the cameras on the major courts are expensive, but there is a lot of movement out there now. Towards a new, uh, ITF has a new system called Fox 10. This play site right. uh, technology that's coming out they have everywhere now in colleges and the USTA. So one of the real, real difficult challenges for these guys is they're they're dealing with a lot of subjectivity. You now the guys that the, on the in the major, you know, the big you know the big players on the major courts with the Hawkeye, they know they're going to get a fair shake. And they don't have to worry about the Lions call or the umpiring going against them. They always know it's going it, to – you know, they have the challenge system available to them. But the guys who don't have the challenge system avail- available to them, it's just it's just an incredibly difficult uh, endeavor they're going for. And there's no margin at these matches. And these guys are so, so right. close and, and... – you know, one bad call can tip you. And uh, you know, you said you saw it down in Tempe this week. I saw it up in San Francisco uh, last week. And and it just seems unthinkable to me at this stage in 2017 that the ATP making all the money that they are can't figure out a way to to, to better serve these players who deserve all the you know they deserve to have a get a fair shake out. They're just like the top you know people in the top courts, in my opinion.
0: No, I've got I've got a uh, a, a serious question, then a uh, tongue-in-cheek question for you along those lines. Absolutely, uh, uh, right. It, it, it uh, I, the calls I saw were comparable to what you saw. Uh, Novikov in the semifinal played uh, Sangrin, the eventual Tempe champion. I saw them play. Barry yesterday. Uh, again, this should have been finals day, but given the rain that we received in the state of Arizona coming from Southern California, every, everything was washed out on, on Saturday. And, uh, boy, it was a long uh, long day on, Saturday, on Sunday to watch these guys play as well. But uh, Novikov absolutely imploded. I mean, uh, he won the first set against Sangren 6-4 and then uh, was very, very, very unhappy with uh, with the chair, with the lack of calls. Sangren himself – couldn't believe some of the calls that uh, went against him as well. Um, on the other court, uh, Gebeshvili, former number 43 in the world last year, Barry, and this is a guy who played in the Olympics last year representing Russia. Uh, you know, got hooked on several calls as well, uh, some that he wasn't even aware of that uh, were right in front of me that uh, unfortunately didn't happen. Let me ask you this. You know, obviously, you want to be able to paint lines if you can, and uh, on, on the main tour, it you know, the you can you can have Hawkeye and challenge that and be backed up, and even you know, barely touching the line, you're going to get that if you challenge it. And you're right. Should these guys be more? Should these guys and gals concentrate more on just literally putting it in rather than trying to be too good? Because if you're too good, if you're if you're spot on. There could be a very good chance that you are, uh, that, that shot, that gem of a shot is called out and it's not going to be overruled. You're, you're penalized for excellence. You're penalized for being too good. At this level, at the challenger and future level, should they be more concentrating on putting it in rather than going for lines?
1: I mean, I you know, I just it's human nature, and you know, if you're having an experience where you know, you know, you're doing A and you're getting result B, if you're going, if you're gunning for lines, if you're, you know, you're plowing the ball towards the baseline, and you know you're getting you're getting turned, you're getting tooled a little bit. Absolutely, I mean, why would you not? Why would you go line hunting if you? There's <laughs> a fifty-fifty chance right. you're not going to. The right call. I, I mean, it, it's it's human. It's natural to want to play a little more conservatively and play more towards the middle of the service box or towards the middle of the court when you're playing. That's just absolutely, you know, intu- intuition would demand that. I, I just don't know how you would keep going line hunting if you're getting bad call after bad call. You know, one thing I spoke to a gentleman who runs a, a twenty-five thousand dollar tournament in Tennessee, and you know, they spend that exact same amount of money, the prize money, as they do on on the umpire. So each week, wow. you know, these tournaments they're spending twenty-five grand. On umpires uh you know for housing them and paying them and feeding them and everything and it's fascinating uh that you know if you and that's every year so every time you run one of these events it's the same. you got to pony up that next 25 and it's only going up and up uh within with inflation so you would think at some point they have to figure out some way to get a portable system in here that is a is better and b is more cost effective you know these tournaments are going to be around yeah. for a bit and, and um you know if i was if i bought a tournament and i'm running a tournament absolutely i'd want to have the best you know the best facilities and the best uh logistics for the players and I think that would be an attractive draw to players. You know, I would think they'd want that. Um yeah, that, that top level uh you know accommodations like that. So I, I just think you know it's it's reaching a kind of a, a push a point here where I think uh certainly on the on the main tour ten you know ten, twelve years ago when uh it was the Serena match against Capriati that really kinda of, right. kinda of was the tip. You know, it just said, okay, this is we've got to do something or this is ridiculous.
0: Um
1: you know, and yeah, it's just it's just it's time. I mean, the human error aspect of, and this is not to chastise the the officials. They have an almost impossible job. I mean, the human eye can only pick up so much. I just don't know how you can be that accurate um, when it comes to to making these line calls and really feeling that you know 100% uh, certainty behind the the calls you're making. So I, it's just time. The technology has to be there, and it's just now it's just a matter of making it affordable and and practical.
0: Well, along those lines, I'll I'll turn back the clock and uh, uh, use a basketball analogy here. Isaiah Thomas, uh, you know, we had this CBA, which was more of a minor league uh, developmental uh, type of thing, and individual franchises were owned by different people. Isaiah Thomas bought the whole league at one point and uh, decided to manage it and run it on his own. Along those lines, Barry, you know, we look at Indian Wells. It's got Hawkeye on every court, and Larry Ellison obviously owns and operates that tournament. We've got majors that, uh, you know, are lacking in Hawkeye. And as you mentioned, the technology is there. It's becoming more affordable. Is it time to turn over professional tennis to someone like Larry Ellison and just say, do your thing, just provide on every court and every tournament? I mean, obviously that we're talking about probably the – seventh or eighth wealthiest man in the world he he really knows what he's doing at any wells making the majors look bad with what he's got going in his backyard if you will uh, but it's it, it's unfair even at a major to have somebody playing on a side court that does not have the ability to make a challenge call uh, whereas someone who's playing on a on main court or one of three or four main courts whatever it is at this point to be able to do that There's too much at stake, and uh, you know we're going to get back to the Tempe 75K here, where Tennis Sangren won this. But uh, as you know, Barry, as you well know, a a point here or there. I mean, we're we're talking about you know Tennis Sangren won ten thousand eight hundred dollars today for winning the Tempe 75K. The runner-up, six thousand three hundred three hundred sixty dollars. Big difference, big discrepancy, big difference in points. A call here, a call there, and as you saw in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and as I saw here in Tempe and at the Women's Tour in Surprise, my goodness, um, it, it's a shame that uh, somebody's future or you know, as you well know, one one win here or there can get you can, can can buy you four or five six months on the tour if you win the right places. It's time, and it, it is affordable. Is it time? to turn it over to someone like Larry Ellison along those lines to say, just, just you know, buy in and fix this.
1: Well, that's, yeah, and then that's a great point. I mean, I, I almost feel like Larry Ellison is, is you know, as the owner of Indian Wells is competing against the other tournaments, and uh, yeah. I mean, he's just going to throw resources behind that event and try to outshine everything out there. I, I mean, absolute shame on the USGA at, at the National Tennis Center for not having uh, – uh, on all the courts. I mean, the amount of money that they're right. making at that event is extraordinary, and that goes for all the majors and all these major events. Right. It's just ridiculous. They don't. Uh, they haven't found a way to distribute that throughout all the courts for all the major events. Um, you know, the Larry Ellison's. I mean, tennis is. You know, always has attracted the very, very wealthy. The Richard Bransons, these multi-billionaire people. Uh, why they have not? gotten more involved in, in a more grassroots level where just to try to improve the facilities throughout the whole sport is still a little bit uh, you know unknown to me I don't understand why the powers that be have not been able to get a kind of an investment pool together amongst these kind of people and really do what we need to do mm-hmm. to to make these events uh, you know the, the level they should I mean as you said it's just it's ridiculous that people are playing for a living because this is a this is the at-risk level from yeah. 150 to 200 ranking where you know the matches really you know they've determined whether these guys are going to continue to travel and be able to play at this level or have to drop down another level where they don't make any money um you know and the challenger level is great but you go down and let another notch down uh you know that's trouble so this is a really this is the make it or break it level and it's just i think it's just paramount that they these guys get treated a little bit better and uh you know, it's hard enough, you know, to compete against uh, at the, at this, you know, with these types of athletes out there that this should not, the calls, the line calling should not be determinant.
0: No, I agree. And uh, before we go uh, into the Nadal camp, uh, Barry, Tennis Sangrin, I saw him play again. Novikov uh, yesterday got the win. He won today against the Serb, and he's at now a, a career high. Big win for him. Biggest win of his career. Mid-20s. And this is what we're seeing, guys, you know, performing well in their early to mid-30s even. And, uh, you know, the days of 17-year-old Boris Becker winning a major, Wimbledon of all majors, uh, you know, not even close right now. But uh, you saw Sangren in that match against Mo in San Francisco. He's uh, he's on an upward trajectory here, the ranking really climbing in the last couple of years. I liked what I saw for him, a lot of grit, determination, got the job done, uh, lost the first set. In not only the semifinal yesterday, but the final today, came back and won. That's that's huge. What uh, what can you elaborate on, tennis, and further for our listeners?
1: Uh, uh it's a great story. You know, he's he's 25. He's been out there for six years. Uh, he just got his career high ranking. I think he's missed uh, I think combined about t- almost two years in injury. You know, with a hip mm-hmm. surgery and, and a variety of other things. We were we were talking off air. You know, his foot was about to explode. He almost didn't come to, to ATP. Yeah. He was his foot was killing mm-hmm. him so badly. So. Um you know, as you saw in this style of play it's 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 highly demanding he's on a hard court and he's a grinder and he's a big guy and and so the physic physically it just uh wears these guys out but i what I really appreciate with him and Harrison and some of these other guys and Dalgopolov, who hadn't won since twenty twelve mm-hmm. these guys don't get discouraged you know they they understand you know these titles they're gonna have some great weeks and they're gonna make their runs as long as they stay healthy. You know, I think these guys have an innate belief in their game and their ability to compete at this level. And, you know, Sanger just said he's got no points coming off in the next few months, and if he can just stay healthy, you know, he can break into the top 100. He knows he can win at this level. And, uh, you know, and and when he does lose, it's, you know, it's a, it's a breaker in the third. Or it's, you know, he's right there. He's very, very competitive. Guys, so it's exciting for them i'm going to interview him tomorrow for for tennis.life and uh and kind of get his take on on how excited he is about this week and um you know it's, it's just all good you really you appreciate the the determination that these young professionals have and they don't give up uh they don't get discouraged they 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 stay the course and they you know and, to, and full credit to him for having a great week and not getting uh, not getting down
0: no i agree and and um uh, again, uh, a parallel to that, someone, something that we just saw in Australia, like you said, these guys, uh, Tennis Sangren, Dolk Gopalov, not getting discouraged. Marin uh Lucic broni 18 years between major semifinals, and one of the things she said when she, when she won her quarter was, I always knew I had this in me. Uh, I just kept fighting, and wow, what a, you know, nearly two decades later. But that's the mentality that it takes. And as you mentioned, for Tennis Sangren being on the shelf, Almost two years in the last six, Barry, with injuries, credit him for fighting and finding a way. And we're going to go right now from the challenger circuit up to the big four right now. Big news, Uncle Tony Nadal deciding this is his last year with Rafael Nadal. Obviously, Carlos Moya in Rafa's camp. They're both from Mallorca. Uh, Moya really doing some nice things with Milos Raonic the last couple of years as well. But uh, this seems like more of a natural fit. And we saw Rafa get all the way to the Australian open final within three games of winning it. Uh, a, a good mix, but um, your thoughts on uh, the departure of Tony Nadal.
1: Uh, I was just tongue in cheek answer, but I think the ATP was uh, talking about experimenting with a permitting uh, on court coaching uh, in 2018. So, <laughs> So, Tony, so Tony's no longer needed, and now it's an even playing field. So, um, yeah. It's,
0: uh, <laughs> that's brilliant. Hard to tell what's going on.
1: Yeah, no, it was pretty funny. Uh, hard to tell what's going on here. You know, I know he has an academy in, in Mallorca. I have a friend over who uh, I work with in the summers that's over there teaching full-time with these guys. And so, I, you know, this is where I, I think the pivot begins, where these guys are in their over 30. The window's starting to close, and they're just starting to set up their post uh post-tour career and uh, so Tony you know, listen he's been traveling full time with, with Rafael Nadal for 15 years and you know at some point you know he's got a you know he's, he's his own person too and uh, this is not a lifetime deal and I feel he's, he's done his work and he, obviously they feel comfortable with Moya and, and Nadal knows what he's doing out there and it's just, it makes sense I don't think there's uh, there was some rumors that they might be having some problems there but I think he and you know I think they kind of squashed that but uh, yeah you know it's i think it's good for everybody i think it's good you know tony obviously has had enough of the enough of the road and and uh rafael feels he's comfortable with with another voice uh in his box and um yeah i think it's a good good and uh you know he's he's had a great great run i don't think he gets i don't think he gets the credit he deserves really you know this is one of the unique uh, player coaching relationships in all of all of tennis really if you think back on it i mean i don't how many people have stayed with one person for this long, regardless of whether it's family or not. But he's been very, very important in, uh, in his development and his career and all the ups and, you know, the comebacks and everything else. So it's it's a good gig, and uh, yeah, I'm glad they're going out on their own terms.
0: Sure, and, and you know, obviously Moya's like family to Rafa, as was uh, Francisco Roig, who was on hand for both the New Wells in Miami and, of course, the North American Hardcourt Swing Barry in the summer uh, of Masters Canada and Cincinnati, Royce was always there. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I, what I've heard is uh, Tony Nadal is a phone call away. Look, if if you if you really need me, I, I'm there. So, uh, but good good call. I, and I, boy, that that that's a tremendous uh, quip, if you will, about the Encore coaching in 18. That that's uh, that's beyond brilliant, by the way. So, um, last segment right now, Doug Adler, uh, someone that you've known for Barry for decades. Uh, I had a chance to meet and talk with Doug in Cincinnati in 09, 10, and 11 when he was in the booth with Rob Koenig, Jason Goodall, when it was just the three of them calling ATP Masters 1000 matches. And um, I I talked with Doug a little bit. He told me he learned his craft from John Barrett, the... uh, you know, British broadcaster. He said he learned everything from from Mr. Barrett and whatnot. But an unfortunate situation scenario. Doug Adler calling a Venus Williams match for ESPN3 for the Direct TV feed, and uh, you know, about 36 hours later, Twitter really broke loose with uh, uh, roasting Doug Adler, if you will. And uh, while this can go a lot of different ways, but. Unfortunately for Doug Adler, he's no longer part of the ESPN family. And uh, again, as I mentioned, you've known Doug for quite a long time. Your your overall thoughts on what's transpired?
1: Well, there's, uh, it, it's extraordinarily complicated. This is this. It, there's multiple issues uh, surrounding this. Um, you know, this, the, the the times that we're in. The the there's a political correctness out there which is actually fine I'm fine with political correctness and, and, you know that's a, a euphemism for you're not allowed to use, use certain language when when you're dealing with certain uh, you know races or ethnicities or sexualities that's just no longer acceptable what was what was acceptable for, for far too long uh, is not long no longer acceptable and this goes back this goes back to Howard Cosell in the eighties calling that little monkey. And, uh, you know, basically from that point on any use of, of a primate term with an African American athlete was, uh, has been a no-fly zone, so this is not un- uncharted waters here. Um, they, they do a lot of sensitivity training in their, in their broadcast training. You know, I've talked to the guys at ESPN that work in and around him, and they say, listen, you just can't say that, regardless of what your intent is, regardless of what kind of a person you are, regardless of how it was taken by the person who it was, it was you were describing. It, you just absolutely cannot say that. And, um, and that's, that's just, it's a non-negotiable. And, and so, you know, if you break this issue down a little deeper, obviously the social media backlash and the Rothenberg type of people that are just, you know, are just, they're awful. And and it's just really disappointing that they, they can, can carry this kind of judge and jury power, um, in getting, you know, enforcing institutions like ESPN to, to have to act like this. And and instead of allowing for Doug to make a, you know, there's a process that, that gets accelerated here, and it's forced people to make decisions a little bit prematurely. Um, you know, the question you have to ask yourself: You know, what if that was John McEnroe that said that? Do they right. do they think he's do you think he's done? Um, So there's a lot of different levels to this. You know, could Venus – if Venus came out and said something publicly, would that have calmed things down? She chose not to respond at all. They have a history of of being very friendly. There's a very beautiful picture of them interviewing her some years ago. And so there – you know, Doug is from USC. Richard Williams used to run a tournament at USC. You know, these guys go back forty years, so it, it's that's really, really challenging. Um you know, I feel bad I feel terrible for him. And now unfortunately the path he's taken now is he's gone hardcore uh he's just protesting to the nth degree here. He's gonna take the his use of the word gorilla G E U G U E R I L L A mm-hmm. instead of Primate gorilla, and he's he's running with this. He's been on Larry Elder and Fred Rogan, and he's he's just got the entire kind of old guard behind him now. And he's protesting, doth protesteth too much, <laughs> is my fear here. He's, 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 full, he's taken off you know he's just he just has gone a little bit too far in my opinion. I think if he if he had played this a little little quieter and just said, hey, listen, I made a mistake. Uh, I should never have used that word. It's not who I am. It's not my intent. And I you know I, and i sincerely apologize for for that usage. I think this would be playing out a little differently. The fact that he's dug his heels in here is, uh, is challenging. And I'm just not exactly sure how this plays out, but they are going to court. He has sued ESPN in an LA superior court and he wants a jury trial, which I think is, is deadly. I don't see how you're going to find 12 jurors, you know, are going to side with him because you know, and the other question question you have to ask yourself is that's Nicole Gibbs hitting that return. Does he use that language? You know, and we're all, we're all, we're all kind of stereotype not stereotype but we're all conditioned in our in our in our society here none of us are immune to this or the policemen aren't immune to it politicians aren't immune to it broadcasters aren't immune to it and somehow some way the the imagery that that he is there was just is just not appropriate regardless of what he meant and um so yeah it's a challenge and this is why they're going to court ESPN feels very strongly about this and as does Doug and this is uh, this is how you this is how you let a you go to a court of law and let them let them decide it.
0: Yeah, it, it will be very interesting to see how this unfolds, uh, and it will you know it will it will get a lot of attention in in the media, much like uh, again he made mention uh, uh, he appeared on some things. Then when when the lawsuit came forward, then then it seemed like all the all the outlets dialed into that, where it was one of the first two or three headline clicks, if you will, uh, no matter where you went that day. Uh, you know, brought former broadcaster Susie SPN, uh, well, you know, no matter what sport it is, I think that uh, garnered a lot of attention and people needed to absolutely needed to find out what in the heck was going on. And so uh, there we go. But, um, you know, great show tonight, Barry, really was. And uh, before we wrap up, anything else that you'd like to add uh, or elaborate on?
1: Uh, no, thank you. Very, very good show again. Um, uh, it's all good. You know, we're just – we're really excited about the site at Life. We're doing our best. Yes. We're going to be out in Indian West in about 10 days. We're doing some uh, – we've got a couple camps we'll be doing out there with Nick Bolateri is going to be a part of our group. Uh, we're doing a big fundraiser for a friend of mine named Tim Siegel, who was a very good pro and college coach at Texas Tech for a lot of years. His son had an unfortunate uh, – brain injury a couple of years ago. So we're doing something for him at the Jack Kramer club in March 4th with a bunch of old tour guys like Elliot Telcher and Jim Pugh and yeah. Jorge Lazon guys from our era are going to come out to uh, support him. So, you know, a lot of good stuff. The tennis, the tennis, uh, tennis is happening right now. It's very alive. It's very healthy and a lot of really good energy going on. And we're just really, I'm really glad to be uh, reconnected with you here and
0: enjoy talking shop with you. Yeah, absolutely. Could you uh, talk maybe a little bit more detail about uh, what you're going to be doing at Indy Wells with, uh, with Nick and company?
1: Yeah, we got a bunch of stuff going on out there. So Bobby Bobby Blair and Nick go back a long way. So we've devised a thing. Basically, it's a little bit like a tennis camp in the morning, um, basically for about three hours when Nick will be out there with us and uh, and uh, Phil Farmer, who was the Brian Brothers' original coach, and myself will be doing the clinics out there. So we're going to be out there, I believe, on the first first weekend, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the first weekend. Um, I think that's the 10th, 11th, and 12th, and. Uh, if you go to tennis dot life and go under into our camp section, you can see uh, where these are listed. And uh, we have walk-ins. You can come in just for the day if you want, and have Nick uh, Nick break your game down and run you through a whole bunch of drills before you go watch uh, you know the real people play in the afternoon. So uh, it's a good gig, and uh, we're really excited to be out there with Nick, and uh, and hopefully uh, we'll get a good turnout this year.
0: No, that sounds wonderful. Uh, I encourage every, everyone, all the listeners, to go check out Tennis.Life uh, if you're interested, if you're planning to attend Indian Wells on that weekend, uh, to go check out the camp with Barry, Nick, and Bobby. So on behalf of Tennis.Life co-founder Barry Buss, this is Pete Zebron saying good night. We'll catch you next time on Replay the Point. Good night. <laughs>